0: Climate change is here, it is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The Sustainable Hour.
1: For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour.
2: Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wadawurrung people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that earn that great honor in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land, land that was never ceded. We have the privilege of living on the land that they nurtured for millennia before it was stolen in doing that their main focus is on nurturing community and their land the land wasn't there to exploit it was something that the land owned them and they had a a, a responsibility to look after it and we as we face the climate crisis there is so much to learn for us in that ancient wisdom
3: hi my name's maggie i'm
4: one of the 100 people who were arrested yesterday Uh, it's time that fossil fuel companies stop hurting Aboriginal land here in Australia
3: and it's time that we tax their super profits to fund the transition
5: each of us who paying tax and we are around 15 million Australians who pay tax every year each of us are handing over 740 dollars a year to the fossil fuel industry I find that Really upsetting that through my taxes, I'm helping the fossil fuel industry continue its destruction of the planet, the climate, ecosystems, weather systems, and causing all this havoc that we're seeing on the TV screens every night. We're likely to see another round of dangerous and severe thunderstorms with large hail, damaging winds, and heavy rainfall. That's enough to bring property damage, trees down, and cause up flooded roads. The federal and the state governments provided a total of $11.1 billion worth of spending and tax breaks to assist the fossil fuel industries. I mean, imagine a small town of 11,100 houses, and each of these houses cost a million dollars. That's how much value we're donating, handing over to these fossil climate wreckers who, as we hear, are not paying a single dollar themselves in tax from all the billion dollar profits that they are shoveling offshore. It's difficult for me to accept that while I'm trying to avoid burning fossil fuels as much as I can, through my taxes, I'm still paying someone else so that they get cheaper fuel and can pollute the atmosphere even more. Every minute of every day, we, taxpayers, are handing over more than $20,000 every minute to the fossil fuel industry. And as we hear, the government is full of all these promises that, oh, we're doing something for the climate. We're putting up some solar here or some wind turbines there and they're trying their best. But for every one ton of climate pollution that the government is reducing, they are, on the other hand, emitting seven tons more through new coal and gas projects. It just doesn't add up. Colin Market, OAM, what's been happening around the world. What do you have for us today? Yeah, well, uh, thank you, Mick. I'm
6: going to start in Newcastle, where the weekend's big event was 1,500 protesters stopped the port from exporting coal for something like 30 hours. 109 people were arrested. What the protesters did was go out in canoes and got in the way of the shipping channel. So the big tankers couldn't leave, the coal tankers. Uh, Among those arrested was a 97-year-old church minister. But the protesters reckon that they stopped a half a million tons of coal from leaving Newcastle Port during that protest. And that gives you an idea of just how much coal and how much money is available to the fossil fuel exporters and how much sway they've got in the the, the, the number of people that were arrested. Uh, now I'd like to go to Vienna, where last week there was a meeting of the OPEC Plus group, and it ended without any agreement except that they need to meet again. Now that doesn't sound very much, except that it shows that the first cracks in big oil's solidarity. Behind the disagreement was a failure to decide how the cartel's members would respond to a slump in oil prices over the last two months. OPEC Plus is a group of oil-producing countries that meet regularly to decide how much oil should be put onto the world market and by which nations. They do this in order to keep the price stable for them. They're unofficially led by Russia and Saudi Arabia, but with significant inputs from Iran, Iraq, and the United Arab Emirates, along with Angola and Nigeria. They are, in fact, the oil-rich baddies of the world. Uh, the group was essentially struggling with the fact that world demand for oil is plunging because the sales of EVs keeps on rising. Big oil has cut an aggregate 5 million barrels a day since the same time last year, causing the world oil price to drop to just over $81 a barrel, after peaking at $98 a barrel in late September. Last week, it was trading at $77 a barrel, uh, and that kicked in the Vienna meeting, and that meeting was expected to bring further production cuts of up to another million dollars a day to drive the price back up. But its rescheduling to another date means that, in essence, the big oil barons don't quite know what to do in a market of free-falling demand and prices. There are several options that are open to them, and you bet your life they're going on behind the scenes, working out what they'll do. And the world's environmentalists and us will be keeping a close watch to see which course they're going to take from here. Now to China, where figures released last weekend point to the nation's target of meeting net zero carbon by 2060 is likely to be achieved a decade earlier than previously assumed. They might even beat Europe to the target, and Europe was the favourite to actually reach net zero first. They'll certainly beat Australia, which announced at the weekend that it would narrowly miss its much smaller watered-down target The International Energy Agency says China accounts for 60% of all new wind and solar power being installed across the world, both this year and next. This rollout has combined with a drastic slowdown in China's rate of economic trend growth. So in other words, they are incredibly increasing their uh, environmentally friendly production of electricity and at the same time they're drawing Less of it. A uh, lady by the name of Lori Mirovita, who's co-founder of the Centre of Research on Energy and Clean Air, says China has reached a structural tipping point where the rollout of renewables is outpacing the rise in electricity demand. A drop in power sector emissions in 2024 is now essentially locked in. He says. he's a he, not a lady, that's because China is building a network of clean energy bases in its deserts and wastelands on the Northwest. Solar and wind parks run alongside it in an arc from Inner Mongolia to Qinghai on the Tibetan Plateau. Then the scale is staggering. The Godmund uh, Solar Park in Qinghai is already the world's largest solar project with 2.8 gigawatts of installed capacity. It draws on seven million panels stretching across the sands of the desert. The plan is to enlarge its sixfold within the next five years. China is also approving two new coal plants this week. Now, that doesn't mean what many in the West think it does. China is adding one gigawatt of coal power on average, as a backup for every 6 gigawatts of new recycling power. The two, in Chinese eyes, go hand in hand. The more renewable energy used, the more we need for coal peaking capacity. That's Chinese coal expert Li Ting said. Most of the nation's coal-powered generating units will be idle for most of the time. The coal plants will be used to buttress for wind and solar rather than as a baseload, he said. They would avert a repeat of blackouts that we had in 2021 and 2022. Coal companies will be paid a subsidy under the capacity price to remain there on standby. Standard & Poor's Global predicts that Chinese coal capacity usage rate will fall by 75% over the next two decades with this scheme. Meanwhile, here in Australia, Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen said that we are on track to narrowly miss our target to cut our emissions by 43% on 2005 levels. We're likely to make a 42% cut when he releases the latest figures tomorrow. So to put this into perspective, while China and Europe are talking about when they will reach net zero emissions, we are still discussing how we can reach targets much less than 50% of theirs. Now here in Victoria, the Japanese owned wind power developer Flotation Energy is in the early stages of preparing to build Australia's first offshore wind farm. It will be called Sea Dragon. It's called the Sea Dragon Project now. It'll cost 6.5 billion. It'll power a projected 1 million homes, and it's proposed to be in the Bass Strait off Gippsland. Flotation Energy of one, is one of 37 companies that are now vying for feasibility licenses to develop in Victoria after the Albanese government last year declared that an ocean bed 20 kilometres off the coast of Gippsland as the country's first designated zone for offshore wind. Some of the uh, world's biggest renewable companies are now lining up and awaiting licensing decisions from our governments. But again, to put this into perspective, the UK has 44 offshore wind farms, producing 13% of that nation's power. Vietnam has 96 offshore projects, producing 15% of the power. But the world's leader is, of course, China. It's got 105 offshore wind farms, producing 11% of the nation's demands. We'll keep you up to speed on how our very first one is going. And then finally, in the UK, where the world's only carbon-neutral sports club, Forest Green Rovers, played a 0-0 draw away at Walsall at the weekend, while the women's team was playing away too at Frampton, and they won 2-0. little bit of good news for Tony at the finish, and that's my roundup for the week.
1: Listen to our sustainable hour for the future.
6: Our first
2: guest today is Rachel Hay. Now, we had someone on from Australia Remade earlier in the year, talking about the work that they've been doing Yeah, rachel's recent project has been called care through disaster and she's been gathering research talking to people about uh what yeah we often talk about here uh, uh, the climate crisis and what's going to come out of that but she's been looking closely at uh people's response to that so rachel thanks very much for coming on
3: Thanks for having me. I just want to acknowledge as well that I'm down here in Nipalina, Hobart on the land of the, the Muanina people and the Palawa people are the continuing custodians here. I oh, want to pay okay. my respect to the elders past and present as well.
2: Yep, thanks for that. So tell us about the research, how, how it how it was undertaken and what were the findings?
3: Yeah so we know we're in this climate crisis um we've seen disasters getting worse and more frequent and communities are really on the front lines experiencing that so from the black summer bushfires the lismore floods to whatever we might see this el nino season um but you know it's it's really easy to to talk about you know the crisis and all these bad things that are coming but i want to talk as well about our our positive future and what we Can kind of build together in these moments. So that that, that's really what Australia Remade does. So we focus on remaking the world that we want, um, rather than just accepting the one that we've been told might happen, or focusing on what we're against. Um, Yeah, and this Care Through Disaster project is a really good example of that. So. In the context of disasters, we've seen people um, across the nation act with care. So from strangers picking up, you know, people in a tinny when the floodwaters are rising to neighbours just asking each other if they're okay, that care is really a revolutionary act, which is changing a system from the ground up. Um, Yeah, and shows that the disruption that we're facing is a chance for us to Rebuild something better, rebuild our communities with care, both for good times and bad. So, based on kind of what's been happening around Australia, we talked to people in conjunction with Women's Health North Northeast, so uh, people in the Golden Valley and Northeast Victorian regions, about what they needed to care and be cared for through climate fueled disasters. Uh, And what we really heard from them was that they want to be seen, safe and
2: supported. Seen, safe and supported. Yeah, a bit of an S theme happening there.
3: Yeah, some good alliteration. Thanks.
2: How was the the research conducted and how widespread, like how many different communities did you uh, interact with?
3: We talked to people for probably around a month um, and got close to 100 responses, so different communities around the Goulburn Valley and Northeast, um, but also people just kind of across Australia and we we did um, interviews, surveys and kitchen table conversations, some of which were online, and really just talked about what people's experiences were caring through disaster um, and what they'd like to see um, put in place to help them care and
6: be cared for. That's really interesting, Rachel, and uh, and I do love the, um, the theme, if you like, or the background of, uh, hey, look, let's care for each other, especially in the wake of a disaster, especially given the fact that we have all gone through a, a hidden disaster in the COVID epidemic and its lockdowns. And the figures that are coming through from that is that we've become a far less caring community. You know, all of the um, the stats that they look at from road accidents, because you know, um, to domestic violence, to all the official figures are showing that we are becoming a more or or a less caring and and a more aggressive community. Have you found that? And if so, have you found that you've got a pushback to your impetus to make people more caring?
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. Because yeah, what we've heard is that people have cared for each other, communities have cared for each other through disasters, and whether that's, you know, the fires or or COVID. And one of the things that we really heard really strongly from people was that they wanted to be seen for that care work that they do. Um, often they feel like uh, external um, service providers don't see that really important work that they do. Um, so communities are really experts in their local areas. So from how high a, a flood is likely to go to which um, neighbours need help. Um, and what we really heard is that communities want to lead and they want um, external service providers to take the lead from them. But we we did also hear about how people were left behind. Um, So, for example, we heard how during the COVID-19 pandemic, the the Congolese community uh, didn't have translations of the COVID-19 information, um, so didn't really know what to do. Um, Or we also heard how, you know, people were told to stock their pantries, but they just didn't have enough money for that. So I think what that shows us is care is so important. And if we build communities before disaster strikes who are strong and who see each other, um, we can ensure that communities are cared for both in good times and bad so, you know, seeing disaster management not just as um, more hospitals or fire trucks but, you know, that that physical infrastructure, that efficiency but actually investing in community spaces um, like local halls or events, you know, connecting communities and equipping communities with the time to do that. That's really important. So what if we think about broader structural changes to allow communities to better care? So a universal basic income or a four-day work week or something like that, just so they can connect with their community or join the SES.
5: I think everyone here in the Sustainable Hours studio agrees with you, Rachel. This is really, really important.
6: But there is one small problem,
5: as Monty Python says. One small problem, or certainly if I was to play devil's advocate here, is that aren't you already now in this process of normalizing the fact that because we are continuing to pollute, continuing to wreck our climate. We're sort of normalizing that, yeah, there'll be flooding. There'll be bushfires and let's just get ready. I just saw a headline in the ABC. It said phasing up to natural disasters help people mentally prepare for times of crisis. And then the story goes on about, you know, a psychologist who says that if we are sort of preparing for the bushfires and preparing for the flooding, ahead of time and we know what to do it'll all be much better yeah sure but nobody's talking about what's causing it
3: yeah i'm I'm really glad that you brought this up because another thing that we really heard is that communities want to be safe um through disasters and to them that's not just you know having the infrastructure where you receive adequate information and you have evacuation centers where you know, people with disabilities can be comfortable It's actually about preventing the disaster itself. So communities on the front lines know that climate change is fueling worse disasters and they actually want disasters to be prevented where possible through policies which mitigate climate change. And that was such a strong thing that we heard from a range of communities and, you know, also about preventing other things which make disasters worse. So um, systemic issues like inequality and a lack of social housing and um, healthcare systems that don't function. Communities really want that addressed. You know, so we can hopefully prevent some disasters. Um, but yeah, communities know that there will be climate change fuel disasters. They're already experiencing it and they know that we've already kind of locked in some level of um disasters based on the emissions that we've already put out there. So they also want this acknowledgement that we have to adapt to climate change now. We need more things like building a second road in and out of of a community so they can get out during a fire to actually disconnecting communities.
6: Mm. Rachel, has it been your experience of speaking to people who survived disasters of one way or another? that when they rebuild, they do so in environmentally ways. I mean, I know they have to uh, put in housing restrictions on what materials they can use and how far they're going to be away from forests and trees if they've experienced a a fire that has gone through there. But is it your experience that when they do rebuild, they rebuild carbon neutral because they're aware of the background of what caused the thing? Or do they just simply rebuild what they what they had before?
3: Mm. So one of the things that our research is is based on is a writer called Rebecca Solnit who writes about disasters as a portal to paradise. So, you know, disasters are this awful thing that happens to communities, but often you see communities banding together and working together and doing these amazing things to respond to a disaster and then to also rebuild um, from disaster. So, yeah, using disasters as this opportunity to build a better community and build better spaces than before is something that communities really, really want and they really want the support to do that. So, you know, whether that is get the support from government beforehand to prepare for disaster through, you know, packing an evacu- evacuation kit or getting to know your neighbours, to during disaster, maybe that is just giving community groups the resources that they need, um, universally just giving them funds so the neighbourhood house can give money to someone who might be struggling so they can get the groceries that they need to, yeah, that those after times. So, um how people recover and rebuild, um, you know, making their communities possibly better than before. So it can be building materials or it can be uh, support for a community barbecue or a choir um, so people can get together and, yeah, rebuild that community differently. So, yeah, one example that I've heard of is um, people uh, rebuilding their communities with art, which is a really beautiful way to you know, take that awful thing that's happened and just come together and make something better out of it.
6: Acknowledging that it's a time of huge mental damage and difficulties because you've gone through such traumas, I was really asking whether or not they come back as they rebuild their lives more environmentally conscious than they were previously. Mm. Um,
3: Yeah, Yeah. I'd I'd say people, uh, the people that I talked to were really definitely environmentally conscious. I don't know if they were beforehand or I'd I'd say definitely there have been more experiences, their experiences during disasters have kind of shown them that, yeah, this this world is changing and we do need to build back better, I guess. Mm -hmm.
2: Yep. Thanks for that, Rachel. We'll we'll get back to you in a minute, but I just noticed our other guest, Lisa Deppler uh, from Ocean, has uh, a question for you or a comment. So, Lisa, welcome. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks, Tony. Good to be here. Thank you for asking me. Uh, Rachel, I I find what you're doing is just so interesting. you know, when when there is a natural disaster, bushfires or, or floods, you know, it's almost the first thing you hear on the media is how much the community is pulling together. It seems to be this amazing conduit that brings people together that have been perhaps living in the same town and not really been involved with each other before. And I suppose I would just wonder, I think you did say that does carry on a little bit afterwards, and I think that's great. What would be really good is, you know, I suppose, bringing that that gelling of the community forward, you know, before a natural disaster. I I I live in Apollo Bay, which is a a small town on the west coast of Victoria, and we're surrounded by bush that has had no sort of um, burning or fuel reduction for a very long time, and and we've had uh, a small group here in town trying to do exactly what you've been doing is raising awareness. and and look, I think it, it's really difficult. We're not getting any traction on that in that group. And um how do you work around that? Because I think uh, people are just, busy with their lives. Uh, we're a relatively aware community as far as the environment and people's impact they're having on the environment. We're one of the highest green votes, I think, um, in the one and the lecture. But uh, we're not getting any traction here either with that.
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. What this research shows is um, building strong, connected communities who are ready for to care for each other in the good times as well as the bad, it shows that that is disaster management. So reframing this kind of discussion around, you know, disaster management is things like more fire trucks and infrastructure, it's actually building connected, strong communities, and I think that's, you know, potentially how you get government more interested. But I, I think for people, it's just ordinary people, it's really difficult they don't, they don't feel like they have the time to be able to connect with the community and I think that's one of the findings of this research. We need things which, policies which allow people more time. So from the four-day work week to the universal basic income um, so people have time to connect with their communities, to volunteer, um, yet yeah, to join the SES or to just join their local advocacy organisation, uh, That's that's really important.
1: Yeah, I think when you're when you're in a small town, if you are an active community member, you're probably already on four committees and four groups. You know, um, you wear multiple hats, and and it is the same people all the time that are putting their hands up for these sort of things. So, yeah, it's a difficulty, isn't it?
6: <laughs> Lisa, have you any theories on why it is so difficult to get the message across to people, and that, are they anti? Uh, your ideas, or are they just lethargic and not interested?
1: Yeah, look, I I think Apollo Bay is a good little study case, actually, for this, you know. I know most people here. Um, There's a a group of people here in Apollo Bay that, you know, I'm the mad seismic lady. (laughs) And then there is a really strong uh, number of people who often thank me for what I do, but they don't have the time to get behind uh, what what we're doing here. And then I suppose I have a core group of really active people. Um, I, I think there's one part of the population that I may never reach, I think, that that other group, the people that don't have time, I think, that sympathise, would like to know more, I'd like to know how to pull them in. <laughs> For sure um, yeah in- i don't have any answers to that colin i think that's the golden bullet <laughs>
3: in my experience i find it really difficult to get involved with things if you know we're talking more about the bad things are going to ha- like that are going to happen and feeling powerless to be able to work against that but if we're talking about you know what we can build together and the community that we can make, you know, at this time, and that that kind of hope through action—that's what gets me going. I think. Can I
6: share my own experience? you you look, uh, if I may, um, I'm a rich baby boomer who's got a couple of um, of rental properties. Our rental properties we manage ourselves. And as such, we're on first name terms with our tenants who are long-term tenants that we've had for more than 10 years. Our tenants are um uh were, let's put it that way, uh, of the kind who were either completely indifferent to climate change or anti-it. They were they believed that it was um, um a hoax. And uh, one of our tenants has, has got a a souped-up car that makes a lot of noise, and he's really proud of the fact that it does that. Around about five years ago, no, maybe less, four years ago, we fitted solar panels on their roofs. We did this without the benefit of the state government's rebates. We had to pay for this ourselves because the rebates are only for people who are owner-occupiers. But that keyed in their interests. And both sets of tenants became more interested in being aware of the amount of electricity they were producing and how much they were using. Uh, since then, we've put in heat pumps instead of the gas, and we're, we're along the path of completely decarbonizing both houses with not just their consent, but they're really working along with us, and they've both sets of tenants one of them is a father and son the other one is a couple with uh, four children now all of them are now really um keen on the idea of completely decarbonizing and they'll talk climate change so it's my opinion that action speaks stronger than words if you show people what they can do and how they can help they get on the bandwagon That's just a by-the-by for both you, Rachel, and Lisa. But I'll put it out for for you to comment upon.
5: But isn't the case, Colin and Lisa, that with climate change, it's like, yeah, we know it might happen here, but uh, let's wait and see. People are just like thinking it may not happen here. And they're just, you know, fingers crossed. Mm. And then suddenly, you know, like here in Geelong, Last week, we had three centimeters of rain in two hours, and the roads are flooded everywhere. And it's like, oh, this is what they were talking about? Okay, now it hit. (laughs) Uh, But until then, you just walk around thinking, you know, maybe I'm the lucky one. Fingers crossed. Oh, yeah. Look, I I wanted to add it
6: into our World Roundup for this week, Mick. Uh, For years, literally for years, we had Somalia on the World Roundup regularly because they were in an eight-year drought. That eight-year drought ended at the beginning of this year, and now that same area that was, it's a huge area, it's uh, it's bigger than Victoria, the area, it's now under flood. They're now flooded where they were in drought, like Pakistan was last year. Uh, when you experience something, it uh, it changes your way of thinking you. I don't know whether the Somalis are Well, they're, they're fighting, aren't they? They've got an ongoing war as well.
5: Language
0: warning. Hi, I'm Mark Mason and I'm a professor of Earth System Science
7: at University College London. Hi, I'm Joe Brand, comedian. And if people like me have to get involved, you know, we're in deep shit. The climate crisis is progressing much
0: faster than anticipated. Our models projected that we would cross the dangerous 1.5 degree threshold in the 2030s or even the 2040s, but at this rate, we're going to breach it within only a few years. Translation, we're still going to hell, but we're getting there faster. We are destabilizing our planet's climate system, which is already leading to an increase in unpredictable weather events. Potentially everyone everywhere now faces a direct threat to their way of life. Your house is on fire, but don't worry, the next flash flood should sort it out. We are heading for unknown territory if we trigger tipping points irreversible thresholds which shift our entire ecosystem into
7: a different state. If you liked climate crisis, you're gonna love climate complete fucking collapse.
0: The overall consequences are literally inescapable. Crop failures, global food shortages, hundreds of millions of refugees.
7: Our complex societies are at genuine risk of collapse. I'm sure in a society where people lose their shit if their delivery orders five minutes late, we will cope magnificently with global food shortages.
0: The irony is solar and wind power are now over 10 times cheaper than oil and gas. We can still prevent much of the damage and end up in a better place for
7: everyone. With wind and sun power, we save money and don't die. It's a pretty strong selling point.
0: Most people actually are in favor of urgent action. The reason governments are not transitioning fast enough is because the fossil fuel industry has a grip on many politicians. In fact, governments subsidise them with our taxpayers' money over $1 trillion a
7: year, according to the IMF. We are paying a bunch of rich dudes $1 trillion a year to fuck up our future. I'd do it for that money. When can I start? We all need to show up now before more irreversible damage is done. Start
0: by speaking up against new oil and gas licensing, which is the last thing we need. Protesting
7: doesn't work, except for the suffragettes and civil rights and gay rights and the right to weekends, I think. So let's go boys and girls. What did you think of my translation? I thought it was great. How bad is it really? I mean, you would never tell me this, but are are people exaggerating (laughs) it a bit to make it seem worse than it is? We don't exaggerate.
0: We don't need to. London, okay? We hit 40 degrees in July, so that heat wave Well, 16 degrees warmer than it should have been. So I would say most scientists are incredibly concerned and many of them actually suffer from climate anxiety, just like normal people do. Okay. How do you think this is all gonna end? Things are moving. I know this sounds very strange when it's all doom and gloom, but the amount of solar and wind is exponential in its growth. The whole economy is changing. China plants more wind turbines than the rest of the world put together. So there's lots of positive things. There's a brilliant book by Simon Sharp, who says, we're doing great stuff, but we have to do everything, and I mean everything, five times faster. I've read that,
7: I haven't really.
4: So take me where the bluebirds sing While we lose everything There's too much poisoning And fly me where the birds still fly Cause smoke fills up our skies Cause we ran out of time Oh well, we tried The roads belong to the British people Not a selfish minority We are in the fight of our lives And we are losing
0: global warming It's a hoax, I mean it's a money-making industry When the wind isn't blowing, the sun isn't shining How are people to heat their home? But it's morally right to honour
7: our promises
4: Well maybe this was meant to be My mother wanted peace And we were not conceived Or maybe we were meant to win But not enough good
2: Lisa, what's up front for you at the moment? You referred to the uh, you being known as the crazy seismic blasting woman from Apollo Bay. What's what's happening on that front for you?
1: <laughs> well, nobody says that to my face, Tony. <laughs> it's just my assumption. I'm the ocean lady or the seismic lady. Yeah, I know you. <laughs> Um, What's happening with ocean down here in Apollo Bay? Well, I suppose the first thing I should tell you is that ocean has grown. We have changed our name from the Otway Climate Emergency Action Network to the Otway Coastal Environment Action Network. And we have a new logo. And we now have an ocean in Ocean Grove. We had a meeting this last Saturday night in Aries Inlet and had an amazing turn up of people wanting to be involved. And we also have an ocean warnable. So communities banding together along the coast is what we need really to um well we're fighting seismic blasting. Perhaps the listeners don't aren't aware of that, but that is our our main um Campaign and has been for nearly four years now to stop seismic blasting in the Otway Basin and the the threat of industrialisation, you in, know, along our coast. Does that
2: include offshore wind?
1: Aha. Uh, look, we 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 have a stance basically on offshore wind. We definitely support renewable energies and alternatives to fossil fuels for our energy in Victoria and beyond. Um, We we did make a submission to the recent proposal for the offshore wind off the coast of uh, Portland there. And, you know, as much as we support renewables, there needs to be great care taken. The area they are proposing includes the bonnie upwelling, which is a a significant area of biological significance. Um, It's an upwelling and it's the largest upwelling area in Australia. And it's very, very important to uh, the, the marine life in Australia, in particular our whales, our threatened whales, the blue whale and the southern right whale. So as much as we support it, we are very cautious of that.
2: Maybe if you can explain what the upwelling is, what's, it's a...
1: Oh, look, the Bonnie upwelling, it's got the most beautiful name and it is the most beautiful thing. Upwellings exist around the planet and they're really important uh, for the foundation of biodiversity right around the planet. Um, What they involve is where the the cold, nutrient-rich water rises up from the really deep depths of the ocean and comes up at these periodical times, and it rises to the surface. Uh, In the Bonnie Upwelling, it comes out of our deep southern ocean and it rises to the surface around January, February, March. It varies on the weather. It has a lot to do with our southeasterly winds. And when that nutrient-rich water hits the light, you get this absolute blooming of phytoplankton and zooplankton. And there are so many species that are reliant on that upwelling happening, not just our whales, our tuna, and, and all sorts of critters that live in the ocean. And it is a, uh, the bonnie upwelling is so important. Uh, it Apparently, that area of the southern ocean the amount of fish that is caught commercially is worth more than the income from the great barrier reef it is hugely significant um there are some really important uh, marine parks close by it's that's that's about that upwellings so i might won't go off the subject time
6: <laughs> can i come on the subject uh, lisa would you mind uh, first up could you t- just quickly explain the difference between seismic blasting and fracking. And then after that, clearly the the bonnie uprising, upswelling, would be affected by seismic blasting. Of course it would. But has it been affected thus far by climate change?
1: Okay. Um. The difference between seismic blasting and fracking is massively different. Fracking is actually used to... on on dry land to actually get the gas up to the surface. Um, Seismic blasting is completely different. It is basically a case of where an exploration company is given an area, either a title or a permit, an area out offshore in the ocean where they are allowed to explore for gas in this case at Sealtway the Basin, they're looking for gas, where they explore for gas. To do that, they have a large survey ship that tows air guns. And then behind those air guns is a 10 to 15 kilometer length of arrays, receivers. When those air guns that they tow behind it, when those air guns go off, they let off a 250 decibel blasts now you radio people would have a fair idea about how loud that is it is actually louder than an atomic bomb they let off those blasts every 10 seconds 24 hours a day often for months on end we currently have a proposal where they would like to blast for 400 days that we're fighting now those those blasts go deep down below the ocean floor 15 to 20 kilometers below which is deeper than um, our October earthquake, actually. They go down deep below and they bounce back up and hit these arrays and they tell the scientists and the data people on board that ship basically what fossil fuels may be down below that ocean surface for them to harvest.
6: And, of course, they want to do this or they are doing this at a time when the world is reducing its fossil fuels need, uh, which seems to be uh, counterproductive,
1: doesn't it? It's just bonkers. <laughs> I mean, uh, any gas and oil that they discover out where they are—they're 180 kilometers offshore of our Victorian coastline. That's the furthest margin of their exploration, and it's 5.5 million hectares. Anything they find, we would not be—they would not be tapping into. And, and and it wouldn't be productive for decades from now. And, you know, we already have enough known gas reserves to provide Australia till 2050 at our current use, and that includes exports. So this makes absolutely no sense whatsoever.
6: Can I go back to the second part of my question a little while ago? Was, uh, I forgot what it's called again, the thermal uh the, uh, the, the upwelling is being brought to the surface. Had that already been affected by climate change?
1: Look, I don't really know, Colin, but I have heard reports that our Bass Strait area is going to be 2.5 degrees warmer this summer than average. So mm. it has to have an impact. Um, the Bonnie upwelling is off the coast, mainly of Portland. And of course, it's port- the portland uh, aluminum smelter that they would love to you know have the wind turbines to to power and you know i it makes sense to put the wind turbines as close to that smelter as possible but we are definitely concerned about the wind turbines being or any kind of industrialization within the bonnie upwelling zone because it's just so important it should be world heritage Yet alone industrialized or seismic blasted.
6: Well, aluminium smelters use a vast amount of electricity, and uh, and they also produce a lot of um, wastewater, which is warm when it enters the sea. So it's going to have a double effect. It's just not a good place to have a, a smelter. It,
2: Lisa, it brings up the point that. Renewable energy companies have to be have a different approach to what the fossil fuel companies have had in the past where they just come in and ride rough rough shot over communities.
1: Yeah, like a capitalist solution to a capitalist problem. I, I yeah. agree. Um, yeah, and that is what's happening. It feels exactly the same to us. Um, Ocean uh, is has got some very generous funding from Patagonia. Um, we are having a summer campaign to stop seismic blasting and it's called the Great Ocean Rescue. It will start on the 6th of January and it will go through until at least the 21st of January. We're kicking off in Ocean Grove uh, with a march down the street in Ocean Grove. Um, The next day will be a paddle out in Torquay and we've basically got events moving in an east to west direction because we actually think the biggest problem here is that people don't know about seismic blasting. They don't know it's happening and that's no accident. That's been quite intentional by the gas and oil companies and by our government. And so we want to raise the awareness about seismic blasting with all the people that are visiting the coast this summer. Because we think if they knew about it and they even know some of the details, there is no social license for what they are doing out there. It is positively outrageous. Listen to the science.
5: At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies.) <laughs>
4: I know we need a system change rather than individual change, but you cannot have one without the other.
5: The most important word in today's world is in fact together.
1: We're being strongly supported by the Surfrider Foundation Australia, who are lending us their film called Southern Blast and it's absolutely magnificent film with some great surf footage but also some fantastic information about the the Great Southern Reef and how important it is to us. Mm. We're also supported by the Australian Marine Conservation Society. They'll be sending speakers and they're providing all of our flyers, which is a massive um help for us. Uh, Patagonia have funded it, but it's a it's still a pretty low-budget tour. Um, yeah, so they'll be great. There'll be paddle outs, there'll be films, there'll be speakers and, and action tents where people can come and actually take action and support what we're doing.
3: That's great work that you're doing, Lisa. I'm so glad that you're doing it. I, I think this proposal that you're talking about, will also extend to the northwest coast of Tasmania and including King Island as well. So, yeah, we've heard a bit of information um, in the south. I'm not sure there might be more information in the northwest of Tassie. Do you talk to groups up there about it?
1: There are so many groups now in our network and definitely we have we have friends in Tasmania and King Island. Um, Definitely. Uh, actually, most of the surf riders are from Tasmania, and their film about the um, Great Southern Reef is based around Tassie and interviews um, fishermen and surfers from that area. You'll, you'll just love it, Rachel.
3: Oh, I can't <laughs> wait to see it. It sounds amazing.
1: <laughs> it's so beautiful and, and also a little bit tragic that, you know, um, yeah, it really moves people to action, that's for sure. It might be your golden bullet. (laughs) (laughs)
3: That would be nice.
5: Great to hear about solutions, you could say, coming from the communities and from ground upwards. Tomorrow, the world is going to meet. 80,000 people are coming together to a big circus in Dubai to talk you know, at the global scale and global level about solutions to climate change. And surely, I do believe that we are on the right track in many ways. Communities are doing the big lifting here, I think, uh, with all the action that's happening at the ground level. But I don't expect much to come out from Dubai. I must say, you know, uh, I'm I'm not having my fingers crossed that politicians are going to come out with some sort of a resolution that, Oh, we'll uh, phase out fossil fuels in the next so-and-so years and so on. It's it's not going to happen. We won't see solutions coming from Dubai, I'm, I'm afraid.
6: Six months ago, I would have agreed with you, especially when they uh, they gave the UAE's oil minister the chair of the COP, and I thought, oh, it's truth, we've got trouble here, we're going to get nothing out of it. But then at the weekend, it was announced that the Pope had got a lung infection and wasn't going to do his uh, regular thing in Rome, standing on the balcony and addressing the people, but he was still going to COP26. He was still going to go there and he wanted his voice heard. So I tend to think that in some ways the giving of the the COP to the oil-rich Arab nations has resolved people's uh, ideas on finding new ways so i i'm i wouldn't be surprised if we do come out with some positive outcomes from from this particular cop
3: i i certainly hope so and you know action on the international level is really important but i i was at the cop a couple of years ago and the the thing that kind of really was driven home for me was that you know, we mightn't have action on the international level and that's that's not good at all. But communities and individuals, you know, around the world here in Australia can really make a difference themselves. So, you know, taking our project, for example, so there's the individual level of, you know, you might pack your evacuation kit and clean your gutters, but then it's also, you know, talking to your MP. Going to a protest, signing a petition, talking to your family and friends and advocating for those broader systematic changes like mitigating climate change, um, as well as, you know, connecting with your community to do that, that's it's it's really important and that's how we get change. And we can make it we can make it fun, you know, we can have a Christmas party and write letters um to your MP at the same time. Um Yeah, I think action on the local level is what gives me
5: hope. It is the only thing that really works. You know, uh, we need to change the laws. I have three teenage kids and they see it very clearly. They're like, well, why don't we just change the laws? But hey, laws are not just changed unless there's pressure from bottom up, unless the communities are pushing the politicians to make those changes. The fingers are pointing at us. Mm. As you say, you know, that we need to put the pressure on our politicians and then we can see the laws change. Thank you so much for an hour of full of action at the ground level and, and a bit of talk about the bigger pictures just as well.
3: Thanks, everyone. It was really great.
6: Yep. And don't be strangers to us, please. If you've got something to say, get in touch with Tony and come back on. You're both welcome anytime.
5: Thank you. Lisa, Thank- did you want to have a last uh, a little comment from you?
1: Oh, no, I hope to see everybody over summer. And I just want to say the seismic blasting issue is quite complex, but if you do jump on our website, we have a fact sheet. And if people read that fact sheet, you basically will know everything you need to know about what's happening in our Otway Basin. Ocean.org.au.
2: All the best for
5: the festive season. Yep. Warming up to Christmas. We are preparing a music show coming up very soon. Um, but uh, in the meantime, certainly here today, you've heard a lot of reasons and ways that you can be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference.
6: Be the difference.
4: Be the difference. I know the world's gone. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Be the difference. Be the difference. The star and the future's watching.